This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. We've got another bonus episode for you today, and here to tell us about it is our producer, Josh Christensen. Hey, Josh. Hey, Kate. So what are we doing this week? So today we are going to dig a little further into the pay gap and what that actually looks like on a personal level and what happens when companies address at least some of the issues behind that inequality. This is a follow-up on last week's episode where you interviewed Maria Colacurcio from Cindio. And if listeners haven't heard that episode yet, I highly recommend going back and giving it a listen after you finish this one. We start off with Lydia Dishman, who helped us put together a great primer on the history of the pay gap going all the way back to the Civil War. And Maria really helped explain all the different nuances that go into the current state of the pay gap, including how the pandemic has impacted pay inequality and and some practical things that companies can do to actually make some changes. Yeah, I think it seems particularly important now, especially looking at the job market from the pandemic after I believe it was like the December's job report where 100% of the job losses were women leaving the workforce. Yeah. And the other statistic that gets talked about a lot is that uh, all of the the gains that women have made in uh, career advancement and just workforce participation, even all of the gains that women have made in the last 25 to 35 years have completely been erased in this past year. So it's not only, you know, it's not only starting from this place of inequality, it's playing catch up in a humongous way now. And so today we're going to hear from Jenna Hanchard. Jenna is a black woman from Seattle, Washington, and currently works for a nonprofit company in the tech industry, But her first career was in local TV news. She actually started in that industry when she was 16 years old. It was the first job she ever had as part of an internship program that started with students rotating through different departments at the station. So Jenna started in HR, but she quickly discovered where she really wanted to be. One day, the woman in the sales department said, hey, I need you to go bring a tape down to the newsroom. And I was like, okay. And I'd never been down to the newsroom before. And I brought a tape down to the newsroom. And I saw like all these people talking about like really cool ideas and stories of the day. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. This is what my internship is. Like, this is this is where I want to be. But I almost wish, like, in hindsight, that my first job was, like, at Ben & Jerry's or, like, an ice cream stand or something like that. Because, you know, when I left news, it very much felt like I had been working there for my life. And in, and in honesty, I had been working there for a really long time um, because I started so young. And, you know, to be fair, you know, I, I left commercial local news. I I still continue to do broadcast journalism within some capacity. And I think it was really important for me to make that distinction for myself because when I left, it did feel very final. It did feel like I can't come back. And I think in many ways, like the industry 
wants you to think that. <laughs> it wants you to think that there's actually only one way to tell a story. But, you know, this was something that was was happening over time. And, and I realized that who I was as a Black woman, but also who I was and what I carried and what I brought to that space as a storyteller was not going to be valued. And so I started to realize that that was going to be very hard for me. And it was getting harder and harder. It was like the more I was waking up, like the more insight I was getting into this formula, I was like, oh, so I either got to stick with the formula or do something else because there's no middle ground, right? And so I think one of the first things that had happened it was with a manager that I had in Kansas City when Michael Brown was murdered. And I remember when the gas station was on fire and I remember seeing those images on Instagram and I was like, this is going to be a big fucking deal. And we were two and a half hours away. You know, so there was regional interest, obviously, right? Um, But also, you know, as we came to find out, international interest. And my news director at the time was like, I think it's just another officer-involved shooting. I don't know if we should go, right? And in hindsight, right, like, it that's the craziest decision ever, right? But, <laughs> but at the time, there was a lot of resistance. And so I pushed and fought, and I was finally sent to go to Ferguson. But it wasn't like, oh, we're so happy that Jenna brought us along into the right decision. It was, wow, Jenna's really difficult. And if you want Jenna in a newsroom, it's really difficult, right? And I would learn that I could watch my white peers and especially white men who are often put into like investigative journalism roles and roles that are like hard hitting reporting roles, right? That are like, yeah, we want you to uncover the facts and get to the truth. And that that type of disruption was welcomed within those bodies and within those identities, but it wasn't welcomed within my Black body, right? I couldn't resist. I couldn't question. I couldn't be the investigator. I couldn't push back which is what is required to be a journalist, (laughs) which is what the crazy part, right? Like you have to ask questions, but I couldn't do that. And so I realized that I would be doing a disservice to myself and my own sanity and my own progress and my own development as a storyteller if I stayed in that space. And so, you know, I think my story is not much different than the experience that most Black and Brown people have in white-centered, white supremacist spaces. It's that they must assimilate to white supremacist norms. And if they don't, there are costs to those. And those costs mean you are either outcast or you're forced to quit or, you know, you have to give up. And so it was very hard for me to make that decision to leave. And then I actually took a pay cut, a slight pay cut. Yeah, that was a cost for sure. But I thought that in the long run, it would give me like the space to figure out like, like short of like just going on a beach for six months, you know, I thought like, okay, I'll take a little pay cut. And if it could give me like the mental space and capacity to kind of figure some things out, that's cool. Um, So yeah, I quit. I quit before actually my contract was up. I was like, should I wait for my contract to be up? And I was like, what's the difference? Why would I continue to be in this pain every day? Every day. 
Why would I do that to myself? But it hurt because that was my dream, you know, a dream that I had thought about since I was 16. And for a really long time, you know, for a really long time, I was really clear on that. And so, yeah, I had to really think about like, what does that dream look like? And that dream can change and those dreams can expand and happiness can expand. And when I left, it did. <laughs> it expanded exponentially. <laughs> it opened my mind to a possibility of living a life that was actually fulfilled with happiness that just didn't come from work. I left and I went and worked for a company called The Riveter. And I worked there for about a year. What it was really attractive to me is that it was like an experiment and it was the experiment of, okay, let's see what like equity looks like in practice, you know? And I was really attracted to the idea that they were working on becoming this like modern union for working women. And they had like four months paid maternity leave and that was available like immediately once you started working. And that those things were looking to be kind of baked into the values of the organization. I mean, the shit wasn't perfect by any means, but I liked that they were trying to answer these questions, right? I liked that they were trying to wrestle with what does it actually look like to live by what we preach? And I could get with that. And also for many places, in order to qualify for or be eligible within your role for parental leave, you have to have worked there for at least a year. With the Riveter, that was not the case. You became eligible for leave for full paid at 100% of your salary, which is also not like ubiquitous. It is 100% of your salary at any point of you working there. That's unheard of. That's unheard of. When we think about like planning and family planning, right? If you can't get paid your full salary until you have worked someplace a year in order to take like a leave, then that like dictates when you have a child, you know? Because you have to be able to pay for childcare, you have to be able to pay for healthcare, you have to be able to pay for, you know, postpartum care and all those things, right? And so I would like to be getting paid my full salary before I have a child. That's really hard. And if you don't have a partner um, or any sort of support network, and let's say you wanted to have a child by yourself, which many women do or people do, that can be really, really hard. And so I think it's incumbent upon workplaces to think about how they actually will support raising families and humans in those spaces. And so, you know, most workplaces weren't actually designed for that. They're designed for like you to be available to them at their disposal at all hours. And the second that you become anything other than just a body, right? Like the second you become a mom or a sister or a caregiver or any other of these titles, you then become worthless, so, yeah, it's just kind of fucked up. And so I felt really grateful to be where I was when I had a child because it was, I didn't have a lot of stress around that. And that actually wasn't the case where I was at King Five. And while I wasn't necessarily like, I want to have a baby now, I knew that I wanted to like start having a baby, like a child at some point in my life. That wouldn't have been the case at King Five. I, where, where I was, they did not have full paid maternity leave. I think I would have had to have taken paid time off 
in order to have like four months and like recovering is like a bitch from having a child, you know? So the Riveter closed down and this woman that I worked with at the Riveter, who's now the CEO of the company now, she had asked me if I wanted to come work for Ada, which is where I work now. And I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do around childcare. You know, like it's, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm still nursing. And because like I'd been home, I, I didn't like start pumping. I wasn't really prepared for that because I wasn't leaving to go anywhere. And she was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like we have the childcare thing figured out. We have childcare on site. And so now my child is literally like right next door to me. And I'm able to like breastfeed her during the day, which is amazing. And then go back to work. And like how amazing that is to be like, this is actually what it means to have somewhat of an equitable workplace, at least for working parents or women birthing bodies that have to breastfeed. This is what it should be, you know? And it was a a huge relief for me. It was huge. It was huge. It was huge. all for this episode if you're a new listener be sure to subscribe to the new way we work wherever you listen and if you liked this episode leave us a rating or review on apple podcasts this episode of the new way we work was produced by joshua christensen with help from pravithra mohan 